How and why do people disappear? If you brought somebody in to help you disappear, have you actually disappeared? We will deal with missing persons on a daily basis, so we're the national experts. Every year, over 300,000 reports of a missing person are made to the police. Even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched. You'll go missing, and we'll allow it that you're never found. People set up We are perfectly capable of holding on to important secrets. Anything that you're doing, you're basically mm -hmm. leaving it your duly elected representatives have been consistently informed. Could somebody go missing without a trace? I'm not sure. You're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. I'm Tim Weaver, author of the David Raker series. Over the course of Missing, I'll be investigating how people can vanish in the 21st century and how we find them again. Join me as I speak with experts in forensics, human behaviour, surveillance and investigation, and we look into the art of disappearance. In last week's episode, we looked at what happens when the trail runs cold, about the organisations that continue to aid loved ones in their search for answers, about the terrible impact on the families left behind, and about the individuals who however unconventionally, offer help in the hunt for a missing person. At this point, even at the end of the series, even after countless hours of interviews, of sitting down with experts and hearing the ways in which disappearing for good is, in their opinion, both conceivable and improbable, when it comes to missing's core question, is it possible to disappear, I think there are still strong arguments for both sides of the discussion. So this week, our final week, we're going to aim for a definitive answer. And we start that process by going back. Because what's been particularly interesting to me is that even in a world of mass surveillance of the internet and mobile phones, of biometrics and data and ATMs, there have been two guests who have remained absolutely adamant that disappearing for good and never being found, ever, is more than just a theoretical possibility. The opposite, in fact. And the reason is quite simple. In their lives, in the jobs they do, they watch people vanish all the time. It's kind of like dating, to be very honest with you, because the first thing is like, tell me your story. You'll remember Frank Ahern from previous episodes. He's an author and a self-described digital hitman. What's interesting about him is that technically, he's not watching people disappear at all. He's actually disappearing them. And either we'll do it at first by email or by phone or something like that. You know, they tell me their story. And I basically kind of try to convince them not to disappear. You know, sometimes things can be resolved without disappearing. And this happens a lot with stalking victims where they haven't gone to law enforcement or they'll say to me, well, law enforcement doesn't do anything. And I'm like, look, you still need to face it. You have to deal with law enforcement. If they can bust them and put them behind bars, you're still a little safer. But what happens if someone is still determined to disappear? Frank runs us through the process. So I learn about their lives. The first thing that I do is I locate every piece of information about them I can possibly locate. You know, that includes online information, offline information, and I decide what information would make them vulnerable, and that would be like their cousin Betty, who's got like 400,000 friends on Facebook and got a picture of every family gathering ever. So, you know, it's like contacting Betty. Betty, you got to take those photos down. Okay, you got to remove this information. So I, I rip apart their life. And after we do that, where are you going? 
And can you live there? Will you be able to acclimate there? You can't be like Johnny Miami, who's this like gold chain wearing guy and move him to a place like Idaho. He's just not going to fit in. So we need to find a place where you can fit in, a place where you can be safe. And how are you going to live there? So what I do a lot of the times is the first three months, I say, just be there temporary, and we'll use like Airbnb or VRBO, and I'll rent a place for them, and they'll live pretty much without having any documentation to an apartment or utilities or phone or anything like that. And if this is the place, what we do is we then decide, okay, let's live here. And I walk them around the city. I teach them how to exist in the city. You know, where's the police station? How do you get out of town? Can you get to the airport by taxi or train or bus? I set up these mail drops, for example, where in that private mailbox is like a prepaid debit card and prepaid phone. In case you're walking home and your predator standing in front of the door, you can't go home. You got to get out of town. So you go to the mailbox, you got a credit card with money on it, and you got a prepaid phone with time on it, and you can leave. But while that takes place, I'm also creating a lot of deception, you know, making it appear that you didn't go to Brussels, but you're living in Copenhagen or something like that. And I start creating your presence in Copenhagen, open up like a personal dating account. You know, we go to Copenhagen, take some photos. So it's creating a big illusion. That's the bottom line of disappearing is it's just understanding where you're going and if you can survive there and keep the predator busy and having them look elsewhere. You have a sort of three-step process that combines misinformation, disinformation and reformation. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about each of those things and how they kind of come together? You know, one of the keys to disappearing is most people think you just pick up and go. And that's like the worst thing you can do. So I kind of like utilize these tools, misinformation, disinformation and reformation. You know, the misinformation is finding all the information about you and deviating that information. You know, the utility company might have your middle initial. It's called them up, getting your middle initial removed. You know, the phone company might have your birthday. It's calling up the phone company saying, you have my wrong birthday. It's this birthday. So the key is when somebody's looking for you, they have some accurate information about you, but they're not going to match it up to the information they find. But the most important thing is disinformation. With disinformation, you have to create the fake trail. You have to have the predator follow a bogus street. When you're hunting someone, you're not looking for them. You're looking for the information they left behind. For example, I'll have my client open up a bank account, say, in Scotland or something like that, and they'll give me the debit card. And I'll send the debit card to somebody I know, say, in Belgium. And I'll have them buy weekly groceries from this card, knowing that the predator is going to get access to your bank records. And they're going to see these purchases from a supermarket you know, every Tuesday in Brussels. And so what they're going to have to do is fly there because they think you're in Brussels. So the goal is to make it expensive to look for you, make the file thicker, and just make the whole lot of bogus information. For example, you know, I would have your mother call Paris. I would have somebody call collect calls from Paris to your mother. I would have your email and your IP address searching for apartment rentals in Paris. Because I know this information the predator is going to access. He's been looking at apartments in Paris. Let's check there. His mother's been calling Paris. 
has got to be there. So that's really the most important aspect. And then the reformation part is just getting from point A to point B and making sure you're not creating a connection. The way I look at disappearing is you're a virtual entity. And what privacy to me is, is not having physical connections, meaning a landline, a TV that has cable in your apartment, or an apartment in your name, or a mobile in your name. I teach you how to exist to be virtual and almost like a ghost, where you have zero connections. Plus, the other key is, you know, if you disappear and you want to make sure nobody followed you from point A to point B. So depending on who your predator is, depends on the walk away plan, the execution day, how do I get you out of town? So that's what the Reformation is. Do you find that if you make it look like they're in Paris or you make it look like they're in Brussels, do you find the harder geographically you make it for someone, the less likely they are to pursue it to its end? Actually, the key is to make it realistic. You wouldn't take somebody who lives in like the crap end of London and sending them to like Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. You may send them to like the crap area of Lisboa. Making it realistic is more key. But you have to remember, if you have a stalker or somebody's looking to kill you, they're not going to become lazy. They're going to keep searching. So if there's that crumb left behind, they're going to go there and they're going to look for it. You can never think that way that, ah, they'll get lazy, they won't look. You have to assume that they can extract any piece of information and everything they find, they're going to go looking for. That includes real and fake information. Would you think that it's actually quite easy to find people or...? It's extremely easy to find people. You know, the hard people to find are the wealthy and the people who are, like, living on the streets. You know, if I'm looking for you, I'm not looking for, quote, you. I'm looking for people who know where you are. And that could be your mother. I'll locate your mother. I'll call her. I'll say, hi, this is so-and-so from the New York Times. Listen, we wanted to do an interview with your son, but I can't seem to contact him. And your mother, being really responsible, say, well, give me your number and I'll have him call you. The minute she hangs up, she dials you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretext a phone company and find out what number she called at the moment after I called her. And bingo, I have you. It's illegal, but that's how you do it. Let's pause for a moment, because you might be thinking here, wait a second. Aren't big businesses supposed to protect our information? I put that question to Frank. Our information is not important to large corporate. It's important from the point of view if their computers, quote, get hacked or compromised. But from a customer service point of view, absolutely not. Because what do customer service people do? They convince people to buy more services and pay their bill. Oh, I can't give you that information. For every person that says no, I'll get six people say yes. So I kind of disagree with that. Big business wants to make big money. Frank talks lucidly about the physical process of disappearing, about the obstacles in the way and the things that could go wrong. He also raises ideas that I suspect very few of us would have considered. I mean, be honest, when thinking about the practicalities of going missing, have you ever considered the idea of heading to Scotland but mailing a debit card to Belgium so a friend in Brussels can buy weekly groceries for you? It's a very simple idea, but a clever one. Yet, without the support of someone like Frank alongside you, it's the kind of idea that you imagine can easily get lost in the emotion, frenzy or sheer panic of a sudden disappearance. Again, much of that much of everything we've talked about over the past eight weeks comes back as much to our digital identity as our physical one. 
Finding a hut on a mountainside in Scotland is one thing, but put your card into an ATM in the nearest village and you're immediately back on the grid. So let's say for the sake of argument that we've taken every practical step to physically removing ourselves from public view, how do we go about doing the same online? I went back to Quinn Norton, the technology journalist whose sources include members of the hacking group Anonymous, to see what can be done. So a lot of, the, a lot of information about your legal, physical identity leaks out through devices that are associated with you. Our cell phones track where we go, but they also correlate that information with our account data. Tracking where we go wouldn't necessarily reveal who we were if our cell phones weren't linked to us, which is one of the reasons why people use things like burner cell phones and um, cash-only cell phones when they're trying to evade detection. Now, over time, more data points paints a portrait of you. So if you are using something like that, you tend to want to use it briefly, ditch it and get another so that those data points are connected and drawing that circle around you. Getting rid of the cell phones is one way of doing it, or at least not getting contracted on phones and that. What about on the Internet? How do you stay anonymous on the Internet? What are some of the ways that you can prevent your identity leaking out? A lot of it has to do with creating a self that goes on the Internet that isn't correlated with another self. If you've got a laptop that you use for activism, even in many cases journalism under oppressive regimes or something like that, it might be that you don't want to use that laptop or anything but that. You don't want to sign into your regular Facebook account. You don't want to go to your regular websites. You don't want to answer any of your normal mails. You don't do anything that puts you and the other you together in one place. The trick about disappearing online isn't necessarily a trick of not being visible online. It's a trick of not being correlated with a legal identity online. There are quite a few people who create a pseudonym, they act as that pseudonym, and they keep that pseudonym walled off sufficiently from their legal identity that they're effectively untraceable. That legal identity may be also having a vibrant life online, but if there's nothing to cross-connect the two, then your regular legal identity is noise. It's just one more of the two billion people that are floating around on the internet. All this tracking paints a picture of you and all this identity play lets you take control of that picture. So as an example, people, dissidents meeting in a country where I was doing some consulting, they said, oh, we want to switch our phones off. And I said, don't ever switch your phone off. Hand your phone to someone else and tell them to go to the store. The flip side of this tracking, always taking a picture of you, is that you can control that picture. You can paint a false portrait for the people watching you in a way that you never could before the internet started tracking you everywhere. And it lets you, as you learn how the technology works, take control of the surveillance itself and tell it a nice little story. It's the total reverse of trying to make yourself disappear. It's almost like trying to continue this story, but put it in someone else's hands. Right. If a bunch of people are going for a secret meeting and they all get to their secret meeting and turn off their phones at once, they've just told the system that something very important is happening. <laughs> At this point, you might be thinking, yeah, but I'm just a regular human being, not a technical magician like Quinn. Quinn's argument is that there's no superpowers needed. The basic piece of information you need to provide is an email address. 
There's places where you can go get a free anonymous email address that leads to another free anonymous email address, and then you can eventually lead that over to Google or something like that. So eventually you can kind of get the dog chasing its tail on that. There's plenty of places where you can kind of start to put together enough data that isn't connected to your legal identity to create enough data to fit into an ever-widening circle. Now, it's one of those things where at the end, if you go look at this email address, it leads to this one, and that one leads back to the first one kind of thing. So it, it kind of dead ends. And then you can use systems like Tor, which anonymizes your IP or the location of your machine on the internet. And that makes it very hard for them to trace you physically once you're using that and you've got a couple services that allow you to establish an identity online and you only ever connect to them via Tor, that can become a cold trail very quickly. These tools have a whole bunch of illegitimate and legitimate uses, but essentially they count on the fact that it's a very, very big haystack and looking at every needle, trying to connect it with the one that you want is next to impossible. Once you've got your head around the fact that you don't talk about who you are and what you're doing, you also have to keep one step ahead of, in some cases, law enforcement, in other cases, the people trying to find you. There's a thing in computer security called threat modeling, which is um, figuring out how somebody's going to come after you and what they want and what you need to protect. For many people who are using a certain form of data hygiene, it's not that incredibly difficult. But they're also making trade-offs to do that. I know one hacker who doesn't use a modern browser. Modern browsers have all sorts of different ways of tracking you, but they also deliver YouTube videos and neat little apps and all these different experiences. And he just lives without that. But he can go to a Tor-protected website and not worry about the FBI being able to infect him from the browser because his browser doesn't run JavaScript. And do you think... In order to anonymize yourself on the internet, you have to have some level of technical expertise. What about if it was just like a regular Joe like me? There's a learning curve. There's a lot of resources out there to teach you how to do it. But there is a learning curve and there are trade-offs you have to make. And it requires getting a digital literacy that we're not currently giving. I really do spend a lot of time encouraging people to learn more about the digital world they're in so they can use it well and be safe in some ways, I think that ability to vanish online has more and different uses, many of which are social goods, than vanishing altogether from your hometown. It's a valuable and powerful thing that needs protection in our society. Is there any way for just a regular Joe to go back and start clearing out their history of a trail left on the internet? Going out and clearing out things if you're really trying to vanish is somewhat counterproductive. You can never count on any previous information being deleted. So if there's a place you said that you were going to go to when you vanished and now you've deleted that Facebook post, don't think it's gone. It's very hard to delete things off the internet reliably. What you've said you were going to do online, I almost think it's more useful to leave it there so that you don't forget what you said and then do something that's going to help to link your identity together. In general, if you're trying to vanish, I would say leave that information there. Very possibly abandon the computer that you used. Abandon all the social media that you used. Don't keep any of the emails. Don't keep anything from that life. And you have a much better chance of never accidentally cross-connecting a new identity with an old identity. 
Making the Missing podcast has been a fascinating experience. At the same time I was recording episode 7, I was, ironically, finishing the first draft of my seventh novel, and that many books in, I would have expected to have learned all I was going to learn about missing people. And yet, interviewing our guests, finding out the extraordinary ways in which we're being watched, the ways in which we can be located, discovering just how hard it is on a fundamental human level to up and leave really brought it home to me how vast and complex the world of the missing is. No one case is exactly the same, even amongst the 99% that are found within a year. The big focus for our show, of course, has been that remaining 1%. We spent eight weeks trying to figure out how 2,500 people can just vanish into thin air every year. Even after you accept that, sadly, a proportion of those people remain missing because they're dead and currently unidentified, there's still a lot of people out there, thousands of them, who are alive and well. The question of where they are and of why they did it will never be answered because by the very nature of their choices, we'll never get a chance to ask them. But the question of how is something that I think, after eight episodes, we're well placed to take a guess at. In fact, given everything I've learned over the course of the series, I find it impressive that anyone could vanish into the ether and stay that way permanently. The theory behind disappearing in real life is the same theory I've used at the very heart of all my books. Someone removes themselves and their life. They dump the phone, step away from the internet, they don't take any money out, they steer clear of surveillance cameras, of anywhere where a man at a monitor may be lying in wait. Those things I genuinely believe are possible to do. It's exceptionally hard, especially in 2015, to lose your digital connection to the modern world as much from a psychological point of view as a practical one. But as Quinn stated earlier, there are ways around it. You don't have to be offline, although that helps. You just have to be careful. Like I said, I believe many of us would be capable of that, despite the obvious complexities. But for me, this is the thing I'll take away from missing. The real challenge of disappearing isn't on the digital side, despite the obvious problem of mass surveillance, it's on the human side. It's leaving behind people you love. It's starting again somewhere without ever looking back. Of course, in some instances, that's the whole idea. People run because they're running from the terrible pain their home environment brings them. But many don't. Just look at the devastation of the families left behind for proof of that. Imagine cutting off all connections to the people you loved, who loved you, and knowing how badly they were hurting. What do you think that would feel like? What emotions must that leave you with? So do I believe it's possible to disappear? Absolutely I do. People do it every day and with much less preparation than we've talked about on the show. The bigger issue for me is staying that way. It's surviving in a brand new life. It's not doing it for a day either, or a week, or a month. It's not even doing it for a year, or five years. It's doing it forever saying goodbye forever. In a way, that makes the stories of those who do that an even more remarkable, mysterious and tragic narrative than we could ever hope to imagine. Thank you for listening to this series of Missing. If you want to find out more about those who disappear and how you can help them, go to the website for the charity Missing People at missingpeople.org.uk. 
This has been a fascinating project to be a part of and one that wouldn't have been possible without the help of some extremely talented people. Behind the scenes are sound producer Harish Patel, Jared Shuren, Sophie Weber and James Honus at Kindred and Tim Broughton at Penguin. And then there were our guests, Dr. Karen Shelev-Green from the Centre for the Study of Missing Persons, Sherry Makara from the Missing Persons Bureau, Dr. Nigel Blackwood of King's College London, Frank M. A. Hearn, author of How to Disappear, Renata Sampson from Big Brother Watch, Olivia Allison from KPMG, biometrics expert Clive Reedman, clairvoyant Camilla Venton Fraser, technology journalist Quinn Norton, and Jackie Kiley and the Museum of London. And finally, for more on the podcast, go to our website at missingpodcast.com. And for more on the David Raker books, head to timweaverbooks.com. <laughs>